Amen. Thanks, T.A. Well, good morning. Yes, I do feel like the closer that has just come in uh, out of the bullpen uh, was saying earlier that when we, go on, when we come on staff here, every pastor has to get this big red phone installed in their house. And man, when that thing rings, look out. Who knows, who knows what's on the other line? So yeah, but glad to be with you this morning. Glad to uh, bring the word with you and to you and look at it together. Um, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 41, how did, we, how did we come up with that for this morning? Um, well, it's because I had to come up with something. <laughs> and we're going to put Luke aside for just one week, and that's fine. We're going to jump right back into it. But <clears throat> it wasn't completely random that I just said, Genesis 41, that sounds good. You know, open the Bible and, you know, hope your finger hits something uh, that's preachable. Uh, not at all. Um, full disclosure, this is a, a message that I gave uh, about nine years ago as I was serving in a church as part of a, a study and preaching through the life of Joseph and, and Genesis and, and looking at God through those eyes. <clears throat> so this isn't something that uh, is brand new, um, but I wanted to share it with you because this is always something that has struck close to my heart. Uh, so sort of preaching to myself uh, if you will. And I appreciate that about the word is that uh, I don't want you to think in any way, shape, or form that this is some sort of like cold reading of an old file. Uh, not at all. Uh, this is something that is, and what I love about uh, our speakers here, certainly our Pastor Tim and TA in the coming weeks and Adam and Ben and <clears throat> Scott and Randy, all of them will be sharing with you out of the overflow uh, of what God is sparking in their hearts and what God is speaking in their hearts as well. And so this is one of those messages for me. Um, not that I think it's the greatest message in the world, but it's a message that, um, you know, just, again, preaching to myself, one that I constantly need to be reminded of and, and need to hear. Um, and so I wanted to focus on that together uh, this morning. If you're like me, uh, or is anyone like me? <laughs> Maybe there's a commonality. A commonality of our family loves to put Legos together. Any fond memories of big Lego sets? Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? Uh, but there is this moment of panic. Uh, panic or uncertainty or something. When you dump out the box and there's those big bags of just random pieces and parts, and you're like, wow, that's a lot of parts. And I can't make sense of any of this because they're all different shapes and sizes, all different colors. And how does this go together? And then you have this box that has this beautiful picture on it of whatever it is that you're going to build. And thinking, looking at the two contrasts of, of all of these pieces parts, and yet somehow it's going to end up like this. I'm not sure what the process looks like in between, but I guess I simply have to trust that all of this is going to turn into that. Genesis chapter 41 is one of those passages where I see uh, a unique perspective and a unique position for us. And that is Genesis 41, we're going to sort of jump in going 100 miles an hour in the life of Joseph. And specifically chapter 41, because it's this unique moment where it's sort of like building a Lego set where you finally, you know, you're, you're cobbling together all the pieces and it looks sort of like a lump and like, what in the world is this that I'm even building? And the colors I'm using aren't even what's on the box. And uh, then all of a sudden it starts to take shape and the picture begins to clarify 
And you can look backwards and say, ah, now I understand. Now I get how all of those pieces were coming together to do something bigger. And you look forward from that perspective and see, and now I can see where this thing is going to end up. I can see what it will become. Genesis 41 is a unique perspective because we can look backward at the life of Joseph and say, my goodness, there was a lot of stuff happening in his life and a lot of it chaos and a lot of it seemingly random pieces and parts of all different shapes and sizes. How does this all come together? But now I see how they're starting to come together and looking forward from 41, we see the beautiful picture of what God has been doing the whole time. And so our focus point this morning is this. It's that, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Do you believe that? Yes. Is it hard to believe that sometimes? I think also, yes. Uh, sometimes we think of that, or we hear that, or we even use that, trying to comfort someone else more of a patting on the back because we, we don't know what, what else to do. Or, or we hear that, those words spoken to us, and it can feel like, ah, I don't know if I can grab hold of that. I don't know if I can stand on that because what I hear is my, mo- my own misunderstanding of that, of that passage, of that, of that truth, and I hear somehow con- convoluted and confused in my own ears that I'm not supposed to hurt. I'm not supposed to feel bad. I'm I'm not supposed to have questions in the time of difficulty. I'm just supposed to, you know, buck up and put a smile on and say, God works all things together for the good. No, what the, the intent and the foundational truth of that, the real strength of this focus point is that even in our hurt and when we have pain, when we have unanswered questions, When it feels like we are just sliding on sandpaper, we can confidently say that God works all things for the good for those who love him. And how can we do that? Well, it's going to help by using a passage like Genesis 41 and the two perspectives of looking backwards and looking forwards. And then we're able to confidently say, ah, I get it now. I see looking backwards how God has been working all things together for the good. And so I can trust for the future to say God is working all things together for the good, no matter what it looks like, no matter what I'm feeling or experiencing. So don't let this foundational strength of this focus point, God working all things together for the good, don't ever let it become a cliche uh, just in your own spiritual walk. We see this focus point come together in three ways in Genesis 41. Genesis 41, again, it starts about 100 miles an hour. And to give you a brief whirlwind history of of Joseph, Joseph in the genealogy in the family tree was the great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac as a son. Isaac had two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's son was Joseph. And so that's where we see the family tree in uh, the, the Joseph line. <clears throat> Joseph uh, was one of many brothers. Uh, he had 11 brothers and uh, was looked on by his dad, Jacob, as sort of the favorite child. Anyone a favorite child here? Yeah, there's a few that can admit it. That's good. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. It's okay to say. Joseph was 
loved by his dad. Amen. And his brothers looked at that some and said, you're the favorite one. You're spoiled. You get to stay up late and, you know, get extra ice cream and, and all that stuff uh, and began to resent him a little bit. That resulted in <clears throat> some definite mistreatment by his brothers in that one day as they were out in the wilderness or out side of town for sure, uh, they accosted his brother, threw him in a pit, and we're going to leave him there to die. Cooler heads prevailed, and they said, well, we can't just kill him and leave him here. Why don't we sell him into slavery to this traveling band of Egyptians that are going by? And so they drag him out of the pit, sell him into slavery, but take his coat that uh, his father, Jacob, had given him, the coat of many colors, and tore it up and you know, rubbed it in the dirt and put some blood on it and said, Dad, I don't know what happened. We can't find uh, Joseph. He must have been devoured by animals and thinking that that was the end of the story. We're, we're rid of our problem. <clears throat> that wasn't the end of the story. Joseph, taken into slavery, finds himself in Egypt working in the house of a man named Potiphar and uh, is trustworthy and gains responsibility of many things within this house until he is falsely accused for pursuing the wife of uh, Potiphar. Potiphar's wife makes false accusations against him and he is thrown into prison. And there he sits uh, in prison for something he didn't do. It's a tough stretch uh, here for, for Joseph. While Joseph was in prison, he connects with two other prisoners. Uh, it was, obviously, they did something wrong, either burnt the muffins, uh, the baker of the pharaoh gets thrown in jail, and I don't know, maybe the cupbearer, he gets thrown in jail, the official cupbearer of pharaoh, maybe he dropped the, the fine china, something. They both end up in jail with Joseph, and together there, they're talking, and <clears throat> one night, the baker and the cupbearer have a dream. Uh, they both have dreams and didn't know what to do with it, don't know what to make of it. How do we sort this out? What does it mean? This is confusing. But Joseph, through the wisdom of the Lord, was able to decipher the dream for them and interpret the dream, and lo and behold, exactly what Joseph said would happen is what did happen. Joseph was a brave and courageous man because there were two vastly different interpretations of the dream. First, he was brave enough and honest enough with the baker to say, Mr. Baker, uh, it's not going to end so well for you. Uh, you're going to die, as a matter of fact. And that was the interpretation of the dream. Uh, definite bummer for the baker. <laughs> oh, great. I'd almost rather not know <laughs> the interpretation of the dream. But for the cupbearer, he said, no, the cupbearer, you, you, the interpretation of your dream means that you are going to be released from prison and back to your position as the royal cupbearer for the pharaoh. And so Joseph thought to himself, hey, there's an opportunity here. You know, cupbearer, I've helped you out with this interpretation of the dream. Would you be so kind as to when you are back in your position, would you be so kind as to remember me to the Pharaoh to say, hey, you know, there's this guy in prison who didn't do what he's accused of doing, who, who didn't do what he's in prison for, and he's been sitting there for quite a while, and he'd like to get out. And the cupbearer says, yeah, absolutely, buddy. No problem. You betcha. Sure enough, the interpretation of the dream transpires. The cupbearer is let out. And here is where we pick up Genesis 41, verse 1. And it starts with a jolt. Knowing all of this background, knowing all of this history of what Joseph has endured and the agreement that has just taken place and the hope that just maybe he's starting to cling to, 
41.1 starts by saying, when two full years had passed. Ouch. Two full years from what? Two full years from when the cupbearer, who he just said, hey, remember me to the Pharaoh, had been let out. He's still sitting there for two more years, the cupbearer completely not saying a peep to the Pharaoh. That's a long time. How long have you ever sat in one place? What are we up to? How long have you ever sat in, in some place that was just uncomfortable? Joseph, for two years after his hope had risen to the thought that maybe I could get out of here. Maybe there's a chance that, that I could be released from prison. And it says when two full years had passed. This morning, again, as we look at this focus point of how God works all things together for good, there are three handles that I want you to grab onto uh, for this passage that are not just handles for today as we wrestle with this passage right now for the next few minutes, but handles to grab onto and connect to for the rest of the week, for the rest of your lives, because it points to who God is. And the first handle is this, an absolute truth. The first handle is God remembers. God remembers. Why that's important is because, again, Joseph has been sitting here for two years. It says, after two years had passed. It's important to remember, God remembers. He's still in prison, even after all of this. And, and we can ask ourselves, why is Joseph out of the cupbearer's mind? Has God forgotten Joseph? Has God completely just like, oh, oh yeah, that Joseph guy. Couldn't he have remembered, couldn't the cupbearer have remembered sooner? And when we ask these questions, or I should say, when we get stuck in this, this cycle of questions of, of why isn't this happening now, why isn't this happening on a better timeline, we're neglecting the process. We are a people, myself included, and I am very guilty of this, is we see a problem and we want and almost demand a solution. We have a question and we seek an immediate and almost demand an answer. But a demand for immediate solutions is how we end up with extra Lego pieces, right? Putting together the big giant fire truck and I'm tired, I need this to hurry up and so I'm gonna skip three pages. What's gonna happen? I might not have a fire truck and I will have a whole bunch of extra pieces left over. In our lives, that process of what God is doing and working together for the good, if I demand an answer or I demand, hey, this has got to hurry up, I'm going to skip some steps and miss what God is trying to do and be left with pieces that just don't quite fit. <clears throat> God chose to work through different means other than human instruments in this instance. God chooses to work through you and I through all sorts of different means, sometimes human instruments, other times something else. One of the methods that God works through to bring about his purposes in our lives is time. But within that, we can hang on to this handle that it is absolutely true that God remembers. God's character is one that never forgets. Scripture is full of examples of this. Psalm 139 is just a chapter stuffed full of the omniscience of God and his intimate personal knowledge of us. 
down to the hairs on our head, the number of our days, the words that we speak. It says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I go that God wouldn't know me, that I could be sort of hidden from God? There isn't a place. Where can I go that God could forget about me? There is nowhere. There is no such place. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16, it tells us that our names, that your name, my name, is engraved on the palm of his hand. In Matthew 28, 20, in the Great Commission, God's promise for the future and security is, again, one that he is a God who never forgets when he says, I will be with you always to the very edge, end of the age. His presence is always with us. God remembers. God's character is omniscient, always knowing, impossible to forget. But it may spark a question in you, well, what do we do with these verses? What do we do with this this aspect of forgiveness? God is a forgiving God, right? I hope so. If God is a God who never forgets, who who can't forget, what about my sin? What do I do do with that? In fact, Hebrews 8.12 and 10.17 both Tell me that God will remember my sin no more. Is there a contradiction here? Is there something that doesn't make sense? Like, what is it? God is a God who, who always remembers, and, and God is one who remembers my sin no more. How, how do I do that? Both are 100% true. And that God is one who always remembers But God is also a beautiful, gracious, loving God who remembers our sin no more, meaning he does not, he makes a conscious choice to not hold the consequences of our sin against us. This beautiful picture of great grace that only God could express, that in his perfect love, in his perfect justification through Christ, our sin is as far from us as the east is from the west. It doesn't mean that God forgets, but he is gracious and knowingly does not hold the consequences of our repented sin uh, against us. What a beautiful picture that is. God is a God who remembers. Part of God's plan for you is the process of where you are right now today. What I mean by that is you've, you've come here this morning and sat down and, and maybe you're feeling like you've gone through and are in an experience that is, again, grinding gears or sliding on sandpaper. And you think, where is God? I've been in this limbo. I've been in this tension for quite some time. Where is God? I can tell you that God remembers. And part of this process is where you are right now today. And our great hope is that if God remembers, then he is absolutely faithful within this process. And the process will bring a work of God in our life. Joseph may have had moments while in prison thinking, God, you have forgotten about me. Where are you? I am alone. If that's you too, again, trust that God is working all things together for good. He is a God who remembers And putting the pieces together, there will come a moment where it becomes, aha, I see what's happening here. I see looking backwards how, God, you've been at work all along, and I can trust for the future knowing that, God, you will continue to be at work 
to bring about your good. Just as God remembers, that's our first handle, our second handle is this truth that God is a God who responds. God responds. Verse 41.1 started with the fact that two full years had passed. Joseph might have been forgotten, but God remembers him. Verse 1 continues with the account of Pharaoh having a couple of dreams, a couple of disturbing dreams for him. I had a dream where there were seven fat cows, healthy and fat and cowish. (laughs) And they came up out of the, the Nile and then followed by seven skinny cows. And here's the really freaky deaky part where Pharaoh, I'm sure, was troubled. The seven skinny cows ate the fat cows. And the second part of the dream were these seven wonderful, big, healthy heads of grain followed by seven really skinny, withered, you know, kind of dilapidated heads of grain. And the skinny, dilapidated, withered heads of grain consumed and ate the fat heads of grain. And Pharaoh wakes up thinking, what was that? I had like some spicy hummus or something, and I'm not sure what what just happened. But it says Pharaoh was disturbed. And that's significant because here is a guy who doesn't get disturbed because he's Pharaoh. He is like king top dog dude over not just Egypt, but Egypt was the world power. This is the world power the, 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 you know, of, of all the known world in, in that region of that time period. This is top dog. What he says goes. What he thinks happens. What he wants, what he desires, that's what takes place. And here he is completely flummoxed with, I don't know what to do with this. I'm in a situation where I am out of answers. And so he's troubled. Pharaoh does what he can only think of. And he calls all of his magicians and wise men together to try to interpret the dream, but they can't help. The professionals. And I don't know if they gave him what Pharaoh felt was the wrong interpretation, or if they just gave him a blank stare and were like, ah, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. But either way, Pharaoh was distressed. But being at the right hand of Pharaoh, all of a sudden, after two years, the cupbearer has a bell go off in his head. Wait a minute. I know a guy. I had a dream once where I was in prison and had a dream, and there was this guy there, this Hebrew guy, who was able to tell me exactly what the dream meant, and this is exactly what took place. And so he tells the Pharaoh this, and Pharaoh, wanting and desiring an interpretation of his dream, sends for Joseph. Why is this now, after two years, that all of a sudden the cupbearer suddenly remembers? It's because it's the prompting of God. It's the only reason. It wasn't that all of a sudden the cupbearer got smart and remembered or flipped out his phone and saw a picture of Joseph. No, it was the prompting of God. God is orchestrating and again, bringing all of the pieces and parts that seem random and chaotic into play to bring about the good of what he is up to. Physically, this is the turning point in the story for Joseph. Again, the unique perspective of chapter 41. Everything moving forward from this, this moment on, from this point on, is very different for Joseph. Verse 14, it says, Pharaoh calls for Joseph, and Joseph showered and shaved. Uh, it's easy to just, you know, blow right through that verse and, well, yeah, of course, duh. 
that's what he did. But we need to stop here and, t- and, and take just a quick moment and, and point out that, you know what, that's significant that Joseph showered and shaved. It's significant because of what he is about to do, where he is about to go. He's about to go into the court of the Pharaoh and be able to speak to the Pharaoh <clears throat> and not just you know, go say, hey, what's up? But Pharaoh is needing wisdom and Joseph has an opportunity to really speak a message to Pharaoh. Joseph is unique in the sense that he is seeking God this whole time. And so he, I think, is cognizant of the opportunity of, I have an opportunity to share what I am seeking from God to Pharaoh here. And so he showers and shaves. And and shaving is the big deal here because, again, Egyptian culture found facial hair offensive, whereas Hebrew culture was a sign of, in, in, in Hebrew culture, it was a sign of dignity. Joseph could have said very simply and easily, well, you know what? I'm a Hebrew guy. This is who I am. And I'm not bending for anyone. This is, this is me. It's like the greatest showman, right? This is who I am. And I'm just going to, you know, if he doesn't like it, tough. But no, he shaves to go in and <clears throat> speak to the, the Pharaoh. So I asked the question, would Joseph's words have been heard without Joseph's preparation? Because we can easily offend an audience without saying a thing. Joseph could have easily offended and shut the ears of Pharaoh without saying a word, simply by being physically present. So this illustrates our need to communicate with care and preparation with and without our words. It's part of speaking the truth in love. We have, if we call ourselves a follower of Christ, we have the greatest news ever to share with someone who is looking for hope. Someone who is troubled and doesn't know what to do with what is before them. We have the greatest news possible, and that is the hope of the gospel. But I can bring good news to those who need to hear it, and without allowing love to sensitize my awareness and my preparation of what I am about to do, I'm just a clanging symbol. And how pleasant are those to listen to? Those are all easy on the ears, aren't they? Verse 15, Joseph is now before Pharaoh in his presence. And richer still, what makes the scene even more significant is that Pharaoh, again, top dog, needs something. Joseph, prisoner, opportunity to, hey, maybe this is my chance of freedom, has something that Pharaoh wants or needs. There's a significant chance for leverage here, isn't there? Right? Growing up, siblings, sibling rivalry, think back to your childhood. When your sibling needed something, what was your response? Something that you had. Okay, I'll go. I had three sisters growing up. And every time my sisters needed something that I had, I was like, oh, yes, dear sister. Here, here you are. I would like to help you clean your room as well. No, absolutely not. There were three of them. Did you, did you hear that part? And so, absolutely, I would say, well, what can I get out of this, right? I mean, that's what we do. My, my, you, have, you need something that I have? You want something that I have? Well, okay, you know, I get your dessert for the next three nights, right? 
uh, all sorts of deals that we can begin to make. So here it is in this situation where, man, this isn't just a sibling thing. This is the most powerful person in all of the world, and Joseph has something that he needs. And yet, what is Joseph's response? Pharaoh, you know, asks the question, hey, you know, I've got this dream. I don't know what to do with it. This is Joseph's chance, leveraging freedom in exchange for help, right? There's power in that moment. Bigger still, and what's significant is that there's a family pattern here as well. Joseph's father, Jacob, when Jacob was younger, had a brother named Esau. When Esau came in from hunting, Jacob was cooking stew. And Esau said, hey, you have something that I want. I'm hungry. And Jacob took the opportunity to say, hmm, what's in it for me? I could get a birthright out of this. What's in it for me? is a powerfully destructive thought or question in situations like this. Joseph, again, uh, his focus was totally on God and how can I bring honor and glory to God and didn't leverage any of this, didn't leverage anything at all. Joseph's response cannot be quickly overlooked. Verse 16, in response to the the question of the Pharaoh, interpret this dream, what's, what's going on, what do I make of it? Joseph said, I can't do it. I cannot do it. Powerful in a multitude of ways. First, it completely, again, he humbles and submits himself before the Lord, saying, Pharaoh, you know, you've come to me for, for wisdom to interpret this dream. I can't do it, but I know the one who can. And that is God. And points all direction to God, saying wisdom comes from the Lord. It's significant for another reason in this, in, in this sense, and that, again, rewinding just a little bit to the family history, the family pattern of, have you ever felt like you're stuck in a rut or there's like a pattern that, you know, you can't break out of either by family or, or whatever? This shows that, yeah, it, it can be broken through the, the power of the Lord. That it doesn't have to be, you know, Joseph doesn't have to say, well, this is the family pattern. Uh, my dad leveraged this, and so I, you know, that's, no. He said, I'm going to focus wholly, wholly and completely on the Lord, and said, I can't do it, but God can. His first concern was not his own comfort, but God's glory. It's not me, but God will give us the answer. And that is the hope that he gave to Pharaoh. So <clears throat> next, Pharaoh gives him the whole play-by-play of the dream, and Joseph gives him their meaning. And how was he able to do this when so many couldn't? Pharaoh's wise men and magicians, they couldn't figure it out. But here's Joseph and bang, nails it. Because of the truth in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10, it says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that that God's destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. 
Joseph was able to interpret this dream because spirit speaks to spirit. As Joseph sought the Lord, the Holy Spirit met Joseph and gave him this wisdom. When I'm faced with life's question marks, when I'm faced with the conundrum of what do I do, and man, I've been in this grind for so long and I can't make any sense of it, I don't have any answers, what's your first call? What do you look to for the answer to your questions? Google? Joe Schmo? Someone else? I don't know. We try to diagram it out on paper and, and make, make sense of it. Friends, my encouragement to you is James 1.5, and that is God is the generous giver of wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. What do you do with the question marks? Seek God. I love that passage because it's so descriptive. If who, if who lacks wisdom? If any of you lacks wisdom, what should you do? Ask God, any of you. Not just men, not just women, not just right-handed people, not just people who love the color purple. Anyone. Ask God, and what will he do? He will give generously to all without finding fault. What's our second handle? God responds. God responds without finding fault. He doesn't have any conditions. He doesn't say, well, okay, God, God doesn't deal with us in this, or, or make deals with us in the sense of, I'll, I'll maybe give you wisdom, but again, I remember what you did when you were nine. No. It says, he gives generously to all without finding fault. <clears throat> and it will be given to you. This is how Joseph was able to discern what was happening here in the dreams, a desperate dependence on the Lord. Joseph goes one step beyond the interpretation. He gives advice and a plan to Pharaoh. And <clears throat> totally appropriate. It seems like, whoa, man, bold move, Joseph. And no, now he's really starting to leverage. Now he's starting to, to try to find his position of power. No, not, not exactly. Anytime there's a prophetic word given by God, a prof, you know, prophets of old in the Old Testament and hear uh, a prophecy through the, the dream of what God is about to do with, with prosperity and then famine in the land, the most appropriate thing to do is a response, a response to what God is revealing and what God is doing. And so Joseph is simply saying, okay, God has shown us what's about to happen. Here's a potential response. How should we respond? And so his respond, knowing what God has revealed, is, hey, in this seven years of plenty, we should store up for ourselves food so that in the seven years of famine, we'll be able to feed ourselves as well as take care of other people around us. Joseph wasn't doing self-promotion here. That's usually very obvious. And again, Pharaoh's a smart guy. If Pharaoh would have perceived any of this coming from Joseph, he would have immediately been a head shorter, no doubt. But instead, we see the genuineness of Joseph in his pursuit of the Lord. The response of Pharaoh is, well, why not you? You're the guy. We need a guy to oversee all of this, and it's going to be you. What an amazing thing that has just happened here. How God has responded. Not just promoted, not just out of prison, all of a sudden Joseph is number two in all of Egypt. 30 minutes ago, he literally was in prison. 
unshaved, unshowered. And 30 minutes later, he is now number two in all of the land. And what we see there is that, again, nothing on Joseph's pursuit that he attained all of this, nothing in Joseph's effort that he should be put in this position. We see that it is God alone that promotes. He alone elevates man. It is God who responds. But yet knowing that it is all a work of God, that doesn't stop us from trying to control things, does it? Whether from fear, impatience, or pride, believing that God must have forgotten me tempts me to raise or promote myself. God, I'm tired of waiting for you to respond. It's been six minutes. I need answers. Six minutes and counting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you, Siri. <laughs> I guess I have six minutes to finish up. Where was I? <laughs> six minutes, right? In our attempt to try to do things ourselves, we get impatient and say, this has got to take place and I'm going to make it happen under my control. <clears throat> it's not renewal that we find then. It's not rest. It's not peace of God, but exhaustion. And what then? Our pattern, our heart begets, begins to get more and more bitter. And it sounds something like this. We, we fight God by saying, God, you should be doing fill in the blank. This is what's not happening, God, and you should be doing this. Telling God as if we had any authority what to do. Or we ask the question, God, if you're God, how could you let such and such happen? This problem or affliction or this just period of waiting in my life how could you let this happen and it eventually leads to us giving up on God you say because of fill in the blank you must not exist God you're not meeting my timeline so you must not exist again the handles to hang on to for all your worth the first is <clears throat> God remembers Second, God responds. And the third is, it is God who renews. The pattern, the events of Joseph's life from this moment forward, again, drastically and dramatically different. God is renewing Joseph. Not only is he elevated to this position of responsibility and authority in Egypt, the Pharaoh gives him a wife and Joseph starts a family. And we see what is happening in Joseph's heart by how he names his children. Many of you have given names to your children with significant meanings. And that is a powerful thing, a wonderful thing. And Joseph does the same here. His firstborn is named Manasseh, which means God made me forget my trouble in all my father's household. And his second board, Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Only a heart that is being renewed by the Lord can do that. It's not something that he could have conjured up on his own. Healing, again, renewal, comes to Joseph. And it wasn't the position that made him whole. Rather, it was the ministry of God's faithfulness within him. Joseph beginning <clears throat> and holding fast to the fact that God remembers him, God responds to him, and now God is renewing him. Genesis 41, again, this 
unique vantage point from which we look backward and forward. We look backward and realize Joseph's rise is not the result of one lucky shot or simply being in the right spot at the right time. We see a chain of divinely purposed events. For if Joseph had not been treated unfairly by his brothers, he would have never been in Potiphar's house. If he had never been in Potiphar's house, he would have never been falsely accused and never been put in prison. And if he was never in prison, he would have never been positioned to stand before Pharaoh to give glory to God. Now second in command, using God-given wisdom, many are finding life in their time of trouble. An amazing picture of this picture clarifying and we see what God has been up to this whole time. Looking ahead, where we go next, we see the bigger purpose of God at work as well. In fact, God's preservation and his fulfillment of the promise made to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, that there would be numerous descendants, more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky. And without Joseph being positioned, even though it was hard and it felt like sliding on sandpaper for a time, God had a bigger picture that he was unfolding, and it was good. God works all things for the good of those who love him. Where are you today? Trying to make sense of the segment that just isn't clear? Again, coming here this morning and feeling like, I've got nothing but question marks. I've got nothing but irritation. I have nothing but just uncertainty. Trust God with the bigger picture. God remembers Because he remembers, we can trust that he responds and we can trust that he will renew you in this. As we look at Joseph in this, remember Joseph is pointing to God. I don't want us to walk away and to leave this room this morning and say, well, my takeaway is Joseph is a pretty swell, keen kind of dude. No. The takeaway this morning is God is an amazing provider, protector, sustainer. It is God who is the one glorified and magnified in this. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And, you know, okay, we just saw how that looked and what that looked like with Joseph, but that's 2,000 years ago. What does it look like today? How, how, what am I supposed to do with, how, how is God remembering me? How is God responding to me? How is God renewing me on September 26th, 2021? And I want to encourage you with the fact that God is remembering you and does remember you. He remembers that you and I are frail, that we are dust, that we are broken, that because of sin, we have been separated from him. Psalm 103 tells us that. And God responds to us with the best response ever. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God's response to our frailty as he remembers who we are is the fact that he made him, he made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. What a response. That's the response. And as a result, we are renewed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it tells us that In Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
So what we're carrying, the thing that feels like it's a million pounds on our back, the label that we think we've, we've earned or achieved, good or bad, the, the scars that we carry for what we may have done or what has been done to us, God, we are in Christ. We are a new creation. He is in the process of renewing us. So this morning, three handles to hang on. We only have two hands, but figure it out. Three handles. God is a God who is at work to bring his good in our lives. He is a God who remembers, responds, and renews. Would that be the hope for us today? God, as we come to you, we praise you. We thank you that, God, you are always present and always active, always at work in our lives and in the world around us. And, God, we submit to you in that thanking you that, God, you are at work for your good, for, for you to be glorified, for other people to know you, for us to know you more. There's nothing better than that. God, we, <clears throat> we love you and submit ourselves to you, uh, trusting you in seasons of uncertainty, in seasons of difficulty, irritation, hurt, all of it. Because we know that you are one who works for our good to bring good in you. Make us more like you. Uh, God, again, we commit this church to you. Make this church more like you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.